from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast Earlier this year, Indians learned that the song Jimmy Jimmy, composed by Bappi Lahiri in the 1980s, had become a protest song in China to complain about not getting enough food during COVID lockdowns. On the 11th of November, China's government seemed to acknowledge the widespread resentment by announcing relaxations to the strict zero COVID policy that it has followed since 2020. Among the measures of the zero COVID policy include mass testing and sealing of areas. Many have pointed that there's an inherent contradiction in these relaxations given it comes even as covid cases are rising in China. Then on the 24th of November there was a fire in a building in Xinjiang in western China. 10 people are said to have died in that fire. Rescue services reportedly couldn't reach the building in time due to the restrictions that were part of the zero covid policy. Earlier this year we'd spoken to a resident of Shanghai who'd listed other incidents due to the restrictions that had sparked widespread anger. But suddenly after the deaths in the fire a number of protests broke out across China this week over the zero covid policy the protests were in major cities including Shanghai Hong Kong and capital Beijing We want human rights we don't want monarchy Freedom we don't want Amongst the crowd, one protester shouts out, "Down with Xi Jinping!" They reply in unison, "Step down." In many places, protesters clashed with security forces. They held up blank A4 sheets of paper to symbolize the lack of freedom of speech. Universities have since been shut and students sent home. Many protesters have been arrested. Some regional governments have relaxed COVID policies and the national vaccination campaign has been boosted. But Vijay Gokhale, who's India's former foreign secretary, says these protests could well grow if not handled properly. Vijay Gokhale has served as India's ambassador in China and says this is the first time in nearly 30 years that widespread protests have targeted the Communist Party and the country's president. He also recently released a book titled After Tiananmen which examines what China did after crushing its biggest internal protests in 1989 and how it dictated its policies after that. Vijay Gokhale spoke with my colleague Jairaj Singh and me about the implications of these protests. how it affects president xi jinping given he's taken all the credit for this policy so far and how the isolationist zero covid policy could affect china in the long run we started by asking vijay gokhale what he thought of china's zero covid policy one cannot argue that it was not effective because it did allow the chinese to lead a much more normal life than you and i led through 2020 and 2021 I think the problem was that in a closed or authoritarian system where feedback does not have the sort of channels it has in a democracy like we live in uh they stopped the process of developing an effective vaccine because their nationalism told them that 
uh, they did not want to be seen as dependent on the West. And therefore, they said that their vaccine was better than the West, when in fact it wasn't. They also did not vaccinate their population the way India vaccinated its population with a very proactive policy. In other words, reaching out to every last person and persuading them to take the vaccination. I understand that, therefore, there is a large number of people above the age of 60 who have not even taken a second dose, uh, leave alone the booster dose. So effectively now, you are in a situation where if you open up, you risk uh, very high infection rates, and we don't know whether there will be casualties. Uh, we certainly know that if you have taken two shots and even a booster dose, the infection rate may still be high, but casualties are low. But in the case of China, where many have not taken the second dose, and where they have not been exposed to the virus because they were in a bubble, where there was a zero cases or a, a case or two, we really don't know how the virus will behave in that condition. Uh, it's a matter we should all be uh, looking at because uh, this is a place where it could mutate yet again, since it is, a, in a sense, a virgin population. So it is, it is not just a matter for domestic concern. It ought to be a matter for international uh, concern as well. Mr. Gokhale, China's zero-COVID strategy has been viewed negatively outside the country, but why has there been uh, acceptance within China of it till now? And, you know, because the stereotype of China and the Chinese is that they just are open to following these sort of orders. But is that really the case? I think we have to uh, understand the entire uh, history of this international pandemic. It originated in China in the early part of 2020. And initially, the Chinese went through a very difficult time. Uh, but subsequently, uh, when the leadership introduced a very tight policy of zero COVID, they were able to create a bubble in which the Chinese could move and do business and go about their daily life very freely when the rest of us in the world, whether we were in America or in India or in Southeast Asia, were going through waves of uh, uh, increasingly uh, dangerous uh, infections. Uh, and therefore, we should not presume that the zero COVID policy uh, was a problem right from the start. In fact, it guaranteed two years of fairly normal lifestyle to the Chinese people. But I think what has increasingly happened is that in addition to uh, a certain fatigue that has set in, there is also adequate information now available to the Chinese citizens that the rest of the world has come back to a more or less normal pattern of living. And of course, they are also seeing visuals from the World Cup uh, they, are, uh, they are seeing other uh, international events. And um, therefore, I think there is a greater questioning of why there should be uh, such a stringent uh, policy like zero COVID when the rest of the world seems to have come out of it. And I think that was what was uh, what impelled this these protests that occurred uh, on the streets uh, over the weekend. China, uh, at least the notion outside China is that there are no protests and you cannot protest. Um, is that typically the case? You know, uh, it's a misconception that in China you cannot protest. Uh, in fact, protests have happen all the time. And we have recently seen images of uh, major protests where there were bank failures, for instance, where people could not pull their savings out of a bank because it had collapsed 
uh, we have seen a recent protest at the Apple factory in Changchow, where the workers were protesting uh, working conditions that they did not consider to be fair and reasonable. Uh, but these protests that occurred over the weekend are qualitatively different because after the 1989 student demonstrations, we haven't seen protests uh, against the party and protests which have called for the leader of the party uh, and therefore the president of China to step down. Uh, therefore, these are qualitatively different because uh, in China, uh, many things are permissible. But what is not permissible is questioning the supremacy uh, and the wisdom of the Communist Party and its leaders. Uh, and it is for this reason that these protests therefore stand out from almost any other sort of protest that has occurred over the last 25 or 30 years. We are speaking as well because we believe that this is a sign of bigger things to come. And, you know, in your recent column for the Times of India, you wrote that it could be one. Could you explain why? It could be one if the state does not deal with this, uh, with what is initially at the moment very random and spontaneous outbursts of concern in a sensible and rational way. Uh, now, we have seen that in 1989, uh, the state uh, almost immediately called these random protests uh, as a, a rebellion of sorts against the party and also began to allege that there was, quote unquote, a foreign hand that was influencing these events. Now, uh, what it did was it uh, sort of sent a message to the protesters that the state was not taking them seriously that they were simply being seen as a pawn in somebody else's hands and that therefore their issues would not be addressed. And now here again, you have a not identical, but similar situation where the public is concerned that the zero COVID policy is causing not just economic distress, it is causing social distress as well. Uh, it is inconveniencing them in, in all walks of life. Now, again, if the state were to presume that this was the work of a small handful of people and it doesn't reflect the general view of the population, or if the state were to allege that this is an externally induced protest, uh, you might have a similar reaction from the people. Because I think what the protesters really want at this stage is for the government to address their concerns on the zero COVID policy. We should therefore be careful in not immediately jumping to the conclusion that the main objective of the protest is to force the party to step down or to bring in democracy or to bring in greater transparency. Uh, it is basically, uh, the issue still revolves around the extremely restrictive COVID um, uh, measures and uh, some amount of pressure on the government to relax them. Uh, and in terms of the uh, protests abroad, how would something like that be viewed within China, where you've got protests now across the world, these minor, smaller ones relatively, but how does that get viewed there? It doesn't get viewed, simply because uh, the ordinary Chinese don't necessarily have access to uh, CNN or Google or Instagram. Of course, there will still be ways of getting around that with the VPN and, and, and other measures, but a relatively limited number of Chinese have the capability to view that. And if they were to then uh, try to forward it on social media, I think the Chinese state has enough mechanisms to monitor and block that. 
So uh, uh, I think that what, uh, if there are protests in, in Western capitals, uh, it is unlikely to get too many eyeballs in China. But Mr. Gokhale, do you see that these protests could become about other issues like labor rights or freedom of expression? Uh, that is always a possibility because we know that there are a few other things which are not going too well in China at the moment. First, of course, economic growth, which was consistently in the double digits until 2015 and in the reasonably high single digits even after 2015, uh, at the moment by any prognosis is going to be less than 2%. Uh, and there is no immediate indication that in the next financial year or two, it will go back to a higher growth rate. Uh, secondly, uh, there are plenty of reports about unemployment, especially among the youth who are now leaving the colleges and universities. Now, this is always a matter of concern because historically in China, most political movements have originated in the universities. That was where the 4th May 1919 movement originated. That is where the Cultural Revolution started. And that is where the Tiananmen incident of 1989 also began. Uh, therefore, youth unemployment is a is an uh, area of immediate concern as well. Uh, the third, of course, is the the uh, the, the general sense that uh, is there in the people that uh, China is perhaps becoming too isolated at a time when the rest of the world is um, sort of dealing with a new normal, and that this will disadvantage them, whether it is in terms of Chinese students who have enrolled in foreign universities, Chinese businesses. Uh, which are not getting foreign investment because foreign investors are um, really worried about COVID restrictions and don't want to come in and so on and so forth. So I would certainly say that if this is not managed properly, other elements in society, uh, such as the workers, uh, the business community, the students, might bring their issues to the fore and these may come together with this uh, concern over the COVID strategy. But at this stage, I think it's important to also flag that I have not seen any of this happening as of now. One thing with this university students thing, um, all the Chinese students have been sent home is what the latest reports say. Um, could you explain why would you send all the students home at the same time? The greatest concern the party has is that the movement will start in the universities. So dispersing the students uh, would, to any leader uh, 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 in China, be a critical first measure if it were to be a preventive action. In other words, you're preventing uh, trouble from taking place. And uh, the first thing you do is disperse the, the potential protesters. So that's essentially what they're doing. So, uh, you know, in your book, you've written that the Chinese embraced capitalism in part because they believed it would improve their lives. Can the protests over zero COVID be seen as a sign of people being angry over the state, taking too much control of their lives over time? I think so, but I think this has no relation to the first part of your question relating to capitalism. I think the Chinese people were genuinely satisfied that for 30 years from 1980 until 2010, their uh, lives materially improved year after year in a very visible way in terms of bank accounts, in terms of quality of life, in terms of availability of services. They were willing, I believe, to give up some political rights 
in return for what they saw was uh, uh, security, uh, uh, both economically as well as in terms of, of, of so, uh, you know, social security. Uh, now, of course, when that uh, model itself is being challenged, uh, because economic growth is falling, uh, unemployment is rising, uh, and so on, and it comes together with a restrictive COVID policy, then uh, I think there is a certain uh, dissatisfaction that has arisen. But uh, we need to be clear about the fact that if uh, growth resumes, for instance, if the economy improves, if delivery systems once again start delivering what the party has promised them, uh, this will be welcomed by the, by the people. How the party state acts in the next three to six months to a year uh, will really uh, be the trigger for either something happening there at a larger scale or a relative normalcy prevailing uh, going forward. Mr. Gokhale, uh, from your writing, it appears that Xi Jinping has drawn himself in a state of stalemate, either enforce zero COVID policy or allow relaxation. Now, what does this do to his image of a strongman leader? You know, image is something that can be managed quite well domestically, uh, particularly in an authoritarian system where there is no free media uh, or any other means of public expression. So to that extent, uh, whatever he says or does, uh, it can be projected in a very different light. But I think uh, he has been put into a bit of a quandary because clearly uh, a very strict application of the zero COVID policy is likely to once again bring the people out in protest. If they have done it once, there is no guarantee that they will not do it a second time. Uh, but if you relent and gradually relax this, uh, in a sense, it exposes the hollowness of the, of the policy. If you if it could be relaxed uh, later, why didn't we do this in August or September? To that extent, therefore, there is an impact in terms of public perception about him being a leader who is unchallenged and who is supreme. So there will be some sort of a domestic implication. There will clearly be a, a, an implication uh, at the external level as well, because uh, uh, in a sense, this exposes to the rest of the world uh, that this myth that uh, everybody in China is happy with the way uh, the current state of affairs are being run uh, is clearly not true. So uh, while it is not going to cause enormous or even lasting damage uh, to the current leader, going forward, if it is further mismanaged, if they don't take care of the concerns and at the same time they don't look as if they are bowing under pressure, then it could have larger ramifications both domestically and in terms of China's foreign policy. By being the sole face of the party, she today is also now no one to pass the blame. Do we have a better, keener sense of his style of functioning now with these protests in light? I would say that it only uh, confirms or reconfirms the general perception, both uh, internationally and within India, that uh, it is a top-down approach. Uh, and a top-down approach where uh, instead of having a group of leaders taking a decision, one leader is calling all the shots. Uh, now, of course, uh, in one sense, this is not the first time this has happened in China. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, if there is a collective responsibility in terms of a sharing of power, 
uh, that also helps in a sharing of blame if it is to go around. So in a sense, this time, if something goes wrong uh, um, and, and the situation goes out of control, uh, of course, I'm hypothetically speaking here, then uh, the buck will stop at one person. Uh, and to that extent, um, uh, what Deng Xiaoping did by spreading the risk uh, in, uh, in 1980, for instance, uh, really helped in, uh, in telling the Chinese people after the Tiananmen incident that this was a collective decision by a whole group of leaders. It was not Deng who took the decision or any other individual leader. It was a group decision. Uh, this time, it will be a little difficult uh, to convince them of that. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves because we don't see an organized protest or uh, uh, a sort of um, a large number of people coming together. I think this was a sporadic outburst of dissatisfaction if the party takes it seriously, and I think they must do that, and handles it properly. We might all not see anything happen hereafter. In your book, you also point out how leaders were kind of pulled up for failures or not doing things right. I know you said the protests are sporadic, but uh, do you see that sort of being passed down as well, where you will see leaders being pulled up for these things? Oh, they have a mechanism within the party, uh, which is called the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, which it acts as a, a watchdog oversight mechanism and also a disciplinary mechanism, a punishment uh, mechanism for uh, party leaders or party cadres that they feel are deviating from policy or challenging uh, decisions of the center. Uh, so I have no doubt that there will be uh, a fairly detailed soul searching as to why these protests took place. Uh, and uh, if, if the history of the Communist Party of China is anything to go by, they have fairly brutal self-assessments internally about things that have gone wrong. Uh, of course, it's another matter what they will do publicly, whether they will uh, censure anybody at this stage, because that might admit that they have made a mistake. My sense is they will not. Uh, they might quietly demote uh, certain people, uh, because the big state appointments will come up in March 2023, now that the party congress is over. Uh, you might find people who were in charge of these areas not being promoted to the next level. Uh, but at this stage, I think uh, they would want to play things down. Now, if things were to get worse in the sense that the protests uh, um, snowball into something bigger, uh, I think then, the, then there would be more uh, public attribution of failure of duty. But I don't see that happening at this point. The zero-COVID policy which China has followed is perhaps the biggest reversal from what you write about, which is that party's policy to engage with the world and influence it also. How do you see this scenario working in the coming years, especially given you're also risking, as you said, the economic growth over decades at the cost of you know showing the world up in a sense? I think we have to be clear that in the two years that all of us um, were going through various waves of the COVID infection, and China was uh, in a bubble, uh, relatively secure and safe, the supply chains worked fairly okay, in the sense that after the initial COVID infection in early 2020, uh, the goods and services that we often as Indians buy, uh, there was no real disruption in that. And given the fact that China is the world's factory, uh, it was able to put those services out fairly regularly. 
the real concern uh, is uh, the point that the external affairs minister made at the global technology summit yesterday, which is that it was just too risky to have a supply chain uh, system based on the principle of just in time. Because if that supply chain got shut down, then you had put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Uh, so therefore, I think the lesson the world is taking away is that we need alternative supply chains, a certain resiliency in the supply chain mechanisms, so that some kind of crisis, whether it is a health crisis, whether it is a war, whether it is a cyber attack in one part of the world doesn't affect supply chains elsewhere. I think that uh, China, uh, if it moves out of the zero COVID, will now find that they are not the only or obvious destination for foreign direct investment, that there are others that will compete, and that in some cases, some of the key uh, supply chains might even move out of China for security reasons. But let us not forget that this is an $18 trillion economy uh, with a very formidable purchasing power. And uh, ultimately, uh, it is profit that attracts companies. And therefore, there will be enough companies which will take the risk of investing in China in the belief that at least in the next five to 15 years, uh, nothing is going to change and therefore their investments are secure. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.